coming at you from the One Stone Recording and Mastering Studio in New Brunswick, New Jersey. This is The Weigh-In with your host, Matt Ward. Welcome to The Weigh-In. My name is Matt Ward, and I'm a boxing writer and historian from the greater Philadelphia area. Every two weeks, I will introduce you to people from the world of boxing, both past and present. This episode of The Weigh-In features my interview with author and historian Gordon Bond. Gordon runs the history website Garden State Legacy and is the author of three books on New Jersey history. In his most recent book, Wicked Woodbridge and Crazy Carteret, Gordon wrote about the 1926 Carteret race riot. This race riot was incited by the murder of a popular local boxer, Johnny Carroll, by a black man named Robert Ducrest. Without further delay, here is The Weigh-In with Gordon Bond. Please introduce yourself to my listeners. Uh, my name is Gordon Bond. I am an independent historian and writer and lecturer, and I have a free online quarterly magazine of New Jersey history called Garden State Legacy. Uh, and I also write books about New Jersey history. What got you interested in the study of history? I, I wish I had a really cool creation myth for you. But <laughs> I, I don't. I just feel like I always was interested in it. Growing up, I was always fascinated by things like astronomy and science, and I was the geek that was home watching PBS. And um, I, even with astronomy, I was interested in the history of the science and how we came to know what we know. And I just sort of just sort of expanded out from there into general history, and then. Uh, being curious about what happened in my own backyard, local history. And what year did you start Garden State Legacy? That was 2008, September of 2008. Please tell us more about the resources available on the Garden State Legacy website. Well, there is the quarterly magazine. That's the heart of it. Uh, but there is also, uh, there are directories of um, New Jersey uh, historical associations, libraries, archives, uh, historic sites called uh, it's history, called History in Your Backyard. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a speakers bureau, so if you are a speaker looking for a gig or you're an institution looking for a speaker, you can use that. Uh, there are resources for about vernacular history, uh, vernacular vernacular architecture history in New Jersey and elsewhere. Um, there is a page that has, there was a show out of East Brunswick TV called uh, On the History Trail, hosted by Mark Donsteed, and uh, you can watch episodes of that. Maybe we, we're going to have your show on there, we'll see. Cool. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a lot of resources for people who are interested in New Jersey history, people who are interested in uh, preservation in particular. Um, that's awesome. As well as books. and We, we, we just launched a uh, New Jersey history bookstore page. There are various authors uh, that uh, they are listing the books that they've written about New Jersey history, and there's ordering information and all of that. It's a great resource. Excellent. What inspired you to start Garden State Legacy? The fact that there really wasn't a good... New Jersey history magazine out there that wasn't a scholarly journal. Um, there were various attempts by people to have uh, New Jersey history magazines, print magazines. They failed for any number of reasons. 
doing print is very difficult or it's very expensive. Uh, there's printing costs, postage costs that were always going up and so forth. And I speak of astronomy for a while. I had a, a printed um, amateur astronomy magazine, The Practical Observer, had that for a couple of years. And it just got to a point where the costs were too high and I, I ended up not, I wasn't making enough from it financially. Something had to give and that's what it was. So the opportunity to do something online, the digital domain, uh, gave an incredible opportunity. I, whether it's one page or a thousand pages, my cost is basically the same. Mm -hmm. So um, just I, th there, there was a gap, I felt, in popular history publications. You have scholarly journals, but the average person isn't necessarily going to be interested or doesn't necessarily have access to it. I want to, I, I want to have the quality, the, the same scholarly quality, but I want it to be accessible to as many people as possible. I want to make it popular. Um, I always say that you know, if, if history is boring, it's the fault of the person telling the story. Um, people who know how to tell the story well and who can write well and who can infuse infuse it with the passion that they feel for their subject, it's going to make you interested in it as well. And that's kind of what I go for. Cool, cool. Promote that public history. Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. In your book, Wicked Woodbridge and Crazy Carteret, you write about a number of events in the history of these New Jersey towns that, are often that have often overbeen looked by residents and historians. Chapter 7 of your book is particularly interesting in that it covers the death of 1920s professional boxer and Carteret resident Johnny Carroll. Please tell us more about Johnny Carroll. Johnny Carroll was a, a, a local boxer, uh, amateur boxer. Uh, when he wasn't boxing, he was working at the, one of the steel mills, in, uh, one of the smelting plants in the, the section of Carteret known as Chrome. Um, he, uh, he was very popular. It seems like he was a very popular person. When he was murdered, there was a front page uh, story and all kinds of articles about you know lamenting his loss. Uh, people knew who he was. He seems to have been an up-and-coming boxer with a potentially bright career. I believe, from what I had read, he had hurt his hand at one point, and he was kind of staging a comeback mm -hmm. at the time he was killed. So um, there was a lot of, I think, potential that people felt he had. And I think there were a lot of people who just liked him as a person. He seems to have been very popular. He was um, came from an Irish family, as you can tell from the name. Um, that's about it. <laughs> how, how was Johnny killed? Johnny Carroll was stabbed, uh, and he bled to death uh, uh, in the gutter. Um, he and some co-workers were coming home from, this, from uh, the, the steel plant that he was working at, uh, early on a Sunday morning, misty Sunday morning, they uh, met up with a group of black men who were on the street. Exactly what happened is murky, and it depends on who's telling the story. Mm -hmm. And people spin this various ways, and, and just that in of itself, the, 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 the variety of versions of the story alone is fascinating and the nearest as I, as I can tell is there was alcohol involved they were probably all drunk somebody jostled up against him somebody bumped him whether intentionally or not a fist fight started and they were dealing with a boxer who obviously knew how to fight and uh, a man by the name of uh, Robert Ducrest uh, he pulled a knife and he stabbed Johnny Carroll in the heart. 
and Carol staggered, collapsed in at the end of her driveway and bled to death. Uh, his companions, everybody kind of scattered when that happened. His mm-hmm. companions were able to fight off the remaining people. Uh, they went, they found uh, somebody where they could call the cops. They came and they did, they did uh, catch Ducrest uh, several blocks away uh, fleeing the scene. You mentioned Ducrest was a black man. What was the racial makeup like in Carteret at this time? Carteret was a very industrial place. You had a lot of the smelting plants. You had uh, fertilizer plants. You, it was, it was kind of, you know, by the water where um, the smells and smoke and everything wouldn't necessarily interfere with people. Uh, it was a gritty working class neighborhood. A lot of the the, the demographic at the time was um, Eastern European. It was a mix, uh, Poles, Hungarians, uh, and so on. And um, they were all vying for jobs in these plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, the, 1926 is, it, it's kind of at the, around the peak of what they call the Second Great Migration, where African Americans were leaving the agricultural South with Jim Crow and all that, coming north, looking for jobs in the industrialized north, looking for, in places like in Carteret. This is, you know, think of uh, the uh, the Harlem Renaissance period. This is mm-hmm. kind of where this that's where the, this, this was starting, and um, so the theory is that there was a um, there was competition for jobs, and you have this influx of blacks coming into the neighborhoods, and you know many came and they settled and they lived there and they had a vested interest in the town. There were also what they used to call floaters. These mm-hmm. were guys that would come in, they would live in these labor camps for as long as the work lasted, for long as they as long as they were needed. They came from the South, they came from all over the country, and they would come there, and they, they would just be there temporarily for as long as the work lasted. When it dried up, they went to wherever the next opportunity was. Uh, the, the the areas where they where they lived tended to be kind of rough and tumble. Um, you know, you made your money, there wasn't anything to do, you went and you drank and you gambled and visited prostitutes or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was that kind of an environment. And, um, you know, Robert DeCrest was kind of on, he seems to have been a floater. He, he was from, I think, Louisiana originally. He was kind of on the, the, the edge of that community. Um, so when he killed Johnny Carroll, that, there, there was kind of the, the, this tension that had been building up for a while between the black and the white, quote-unquote, white community. I mean, the white community was actually very diverse in of itself. But this tension was kind of building up over resources, Mm -hmm. jobs, places to live, and so on. And so they maybe viewed these blacks coming in from the outside, so to speak, as unwanted competition. And this seems to have been simmering just beneath the surface for a while. And, you know, this guy who, Johnny Carroll, who was a popular guy, people liked him, and he gets killed ostensibly by a black man, and that is what seems to have triggered it. There were riots. They burned a black church, shot it up. Uh, they they ran fa- entire families out of town. Literally, you know, men, women, and children, black women and children, you know, getting at, going across the border and making sure they don't come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a, it, it, for, for, for about a week there, it was just a very violent, very angry time. You had, you, 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 you had gangs that would go be going out, and, and if there was a black man walking down the street, didn't matter who he was, what he was doing, they were going to beat him up. Um, what caused the rioting to end? 
it just kind of burned itself out. Uh-huh. And I think that there was that initial um, spasm of violence, that, that knee-jerk reaction to something. And I think at some point, cooler heads started realizing this is dumb. You know, mm-hmm. we're taking... The, 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 this one man is guilty of murder, yes. Right. You don't take it out in the entire community. People had absolutely nothing to do with this at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of the stupidity and the futility of that, I think kind of people started to realize it. Uh, so things started... It burned itself out. Things t- uh, calmed down enough that a lot of the black families started to move back. The ones who, who lived there, you know, they, they, they would come back. Um, you know, the, the police response was kind of interesting. They would... Uh, Escort black families who wanted to leave. They would escort them to the to to the border. So it wasn't so much we're going to stop people, we're going to protect you from being attacked. We're going to help you to get out. Mm. You know, so there, it, it was that kind of a dynamic. I see. I see. What happened to Robert Ducrest? Robert Ducrest. Well, he was convicted of murder. He served time in Trenton, uh, state pen in Trenton. Um, he pops up again in. Uh, in, in, in census records, he was in Galveston, Texas. Uh, I, this part is not in the book. Uh, I'd want to spin this chapter out into a book of its own, and it will, would end up in that. But the, uh, I, I, I discovered after I had completed that, the, the, that chapter that uh, he was found dead in um, San, Franci- was it? San Francisco. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, this may be one of those things you got to fix. fix okay. The <laughs> um, he was... It was San Francisco, yeah. He was found dead on a beach in San Francisco. Oh, okay. And there, I found the coroner's report, and what appears to have happened is he was at a card game. Mm-hmm. He won some money. He left. Somebody followed him and killed him and took his money. When they found the body half buried on the beach, a little girl found him half buried on the beach, there were playing cards in his pocket. Um, So that is how he ended up. He seems to have... I I don't really know a lot about him as a person. He's hard to flesh out because he's constantly moving around. Mm -hmm. The only times he appears in newspapers or in records is when he's in trouble. Um, And there there were other clashes with the law that come up after, after, I guess, he was released from prison in New Jersey. So... um, he had a very sad end. So he really he, lived, he lived a violent life. He seems to be a very troubled person. Oh, okay. And and where that came from, why you know, I can't say at this point. And it's that's certainly something I want to I want to get into because I think there's a there's probably a very interesting story there if I can find it. Like I said, the, uh, there's not a lot out there except when he gets in trouble. The 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 other thing that that I thought was kind of interesting is that um, there. So there were, there, were, there were two people who came to Carteret, to, two journalists who kind of came to Carteret to figure out what happened. Why mm-hmm. did this happen? One of them is a name that will be familiar to a lot of people in the Newark area is William Ashby. William Ashby was, uh, he, he um, established the first urban league here. Um, he was involved in civil rights I- 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 during this time period. Um, he... He was also involved in, in, in a lot of preservation here in Newark and so on. And it's in, he died in, I think it was 1994. Uh, he, he was much beloved in, in, in this community. But he, had, um, he was originally from Virginia. He was living in New Jersey at the time and in, in Newark. And uh, he wrote for the Urban League's magazine, their, their journal. He went and investigated this event. 
And um, so he's coming at it from the perspective of a black man mm -hmm. who, although he's now a northerner, he came from Virginia where slavery and lynchings were still part of his, his, his life experience. So the other guy that was there was Dixon Merritt. He was from Lebanon, Tennessee. And he wrote for a magazine called The Outlook, um, which was actually based in New York. And um, he would write about Southern issues. Mm -hmm. And he came to give a Southerner's perspective on this riot. So you have this black man, this black Northerner with roots in the South. You have a white Southerner kind of both covering a race riot. And comparing and contrasting those two stories is really fascinating mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it, they don't fit into the stereotypes that you might think that a black man and a white man, white Southerner would fit into. Right. Uh, that is interesting, but also where the stories kind of overlap, that's where I think you're probably getting as close to the truth as, as, you, as we can, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so um, they both came here. They both did their investigations and so on. Um, the, one of the interesting things that, um, that William Ashby mentions is he, doesn't believe, he didn't believe that Robert DeCrest was a black man. He thought he was Mexican. Oh, wow. So, I mean, just this bizarre kind of, racial dynamic going on here uh kind of a twist to kind the of story. a twist to the story yeah <laughs> uh i don't I, I don't know i i would like to be able to see if i can prove that he was from robert de was from louisiana so maybe if i can get into their records if assuming that there is a record of him mm -hmm. i might find whether or not he might have been mixed who knows mixed race who knows? right right wasn't there also a discrepancy with the spelling of uh Ducrest's last name as well yeah, it gets spelled different ways depending on, on newspapers and so on. But that, that, that's kind of common with local newspapers. They write things quickly with, mm -hmm. with deadlines, and sometimes they fudge things like names, like spellings. Um, but yeah. Right. So you mentioned the two big newspaper men that had come down to cover the story. Was there any local coverage from, like oh, yeah. the, from Carteret? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Carteret Press was the main newspaper at the time. And when he was killed, as I mentioned before, there was a, the next day there was a full page, you know, the full whole front of the, the, the first page was mm -hmm. all talking about what had happened, who he was, uh, who the murderer was, the plans for the, the funeral. There were um, when when Carol was when John Carroll was killed, he left behind a widow and I think it was four children, mm -hmm. four young children. So there were uh, people were taking up collections to help support his widow and orphans and 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 you know uh, he, he had the, an aged mother and, and so on. So I mean it was a, it, it, it would be a sad story regardless, just because of you know now these kids don't have a father and and so on, but. Um, when you add on top of that kind of the insult to injury of the race riot, it mm -hmm. takes on a whole different dimension than it, than it might have otherwise. And it's one of those stories that I love because it's not one that people know. Right. When people hear riot and they think, and, and New Jersey in the same sentence, they think Newark in the long hot summer of 67, right? So, right. you know, but this is something that happened in Carteret in 1926. And when you look at kind of the social dynamics and the racial dynamics at the time, it, it, it's an interesting study in and of itself. It's kind of a microcosm, I think, of what was going on around the country at that time, especially mm -hmm. in urban centers, especially in, in industrial urban centers where there was that competition for jobs, where you had you know the Great Migration, Second Great Migration from out of the South and so on. Um, 
which is why I was, I think that's part of also what drew me to the story, that it, it is lesser known history, the lesser road, less traveled road. And mm-hmm. uh, there are elements of it in terms of the racial dynamics and attitudes that echoes with things that are happening right now. And so you can kind of draw those parallels and, 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 and learn from your history in that sense. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I also found it very interesting that, that Johnny Carroll's name kind of gets lost in some of these boxing history circles. Mm-hmm. And the story, as unique and as fascinating as it is, it's, it's interesting that it just kind of takes a back seat to, uh, well, to main, more mainstream history. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of boxing history, Johnny Carroll was killed before he really could make a name for himself outside mm-hmm. of local boxing circles. Um, based upon some of the articles I've read, it sounded like he had hurt his hand recently and was trying to mount a comeback. And there was a lot of anticipation of his resurgence as a, as a force in the, in, in the boxing world. Right. And that obviously got cut short. So um, there is that what-if element to it, I think, for, for boxing historians. Um, that squandered opportunity, squandered potential, you right, know. Right. Um, all because of a, a drunken street brawl, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Good point. What other projects are you currently working on? I'm finishing up a book right now about the 1951 Woodbridge train wreck. Uh, February the 6th, 1951, it is the, the deadliest railroad accident in New Jersey's history. Uh, 85 people killed. Um, this happened, there was a, a Pennsylvania Railroad Express passenger train known as the Broker, and it was traveling from uh, Jersey City to Bay, down to Bayhead Junction. And when it passed through Woodbridge, uh, they were building the turnpike, the New Jersey Turnpike at the time. And where the turnpike cuts through the train tracks, they had to build a new train bridge to carry the train tracks over the highway. And while they were doing that, they couldn't stop the trains, so they built a temporary trestle with temporary tracks. So the train would be, trains would be coming down, they would go off the main line onto this temporary track around that would skirt the, the, the construction zone and then get back onto the main line further south. Um, there is a curve off the main line onto this temporary track. The, when they built it, it was rated for 25 miles an hour, meaning the trains had to slow down to 25 miles an hour to negotiate this very tight curve. Uh, the broker was there, was, there were no speedometers, it was a, a steam locomotive, there were no speedometers in, the, in these things, but it's estimated it was going 55 to 60 miles per hour when it hit that curve and it derailed. And if you're familiar with Woodbridge at all, the train tracks that go through town are up on a 30, 40 foot embankment. Right. And so when it derailed, the cars creamed down the side of this embankment onto, Fult- onto Fulton Street. Um, so that, that's something that, that uh, I learned about sort of when I was working in Woodbridge, and I just thought that it would, I was wondering why a book hadn't been written about it. There, there's just so many, the stories of survival, the story, the, 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 um, the luck or lack of it that put people either on the train or not on the train. Uh, all the stories of the rescuers, the people who, who, who tried to help, the, the, the people who lived along Fulton Street, Literally, this happened, you know, on their doorstep, and they're opening up their doors to to let people in to use use phones. They didn't have cell phones back then, mm-hmm. so people were looking for a, a line to, if they survived, to say, "Hey, I'm okay," or to make arrangements to get home. Uh, I talked to, uh, I, I was able to talk to people 
who were on the train, people who lost family members, people who lived on Fulton Street, people who worked in the hospital, people who were part of the rescue, people who were bystanders, and so on. Uh, it's over 60 years now. There's not a lot of them left, and some of them have since passed away since I've talked to them. So this is that last opportunity to, to get that, that firsthand history. Um, so um, then, of course, you have the whole question of, well, why did this happen? Why did this otherwise experienced engineer forget that he was supposed to be doing 25 miles per hour? And that gets into a whole thing about what the practices were of the Pennsylvania Railroad and how their rules were kind of out of line with the rest of the railroad industry at the time and why wasn't there a yellow signal. And so, so th there's this human interest aspect of that you have in any kind of situation like that. And you know, then you also have the technical aspects of why did this happen. Um, so you have the disaster human uh, interest element, you have the part for people who are who like trains, who are interested in railroad history, mm -hmm. people who remember New Jersey history, who remember you know, Woodbridge history. Uh, there's a lot of people who remember it, you know, or at least remember hearing about it, and they, 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 they didn't necessarily know all the details of what happened, so there's a lot of interest in it. Uh, I'm finishing up the, the production files for it now, and um, it, hopefully it's going to be out in, um, in the spring, so another couple of cool. months. I should have it, and maybe I can come back and talk to you about it. Yeah, yeah, that would be great, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> How can my listeners learn more about your writing in Garden State Legacy? Just go to GardenStateLegacy.com, all one word. Uh, the website, you, know, you can click around. All the resources are there. The magazine is there. There's pages about, uh, peop you know, like I said, there's the bookstore pages where you can learn about my books and other people's books. Um, all kinds of neat New Jersey history stuff on it. Cool. I'll make sure to post the link to the website on my page. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say to my listeners? Just to keep studying and learning from your history that is becoming more and more important. Um, it's not boring. It's not dull. But you have to. The person who's telling it has to tell a good story. And if you want to hear some good stories, and you're fast, you want to know what happened in your backyard. If you live in New Jersey, then visit GSL. Very well said, Gordon. Thank you very much for sitting down with me. Thank this you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. You can learn more about Gordon Bond via a series of links to websites such as Garden State Legacy in the notes section of this episode. And now, our executive producer, Peter Lloyd, will tell us more about our next episode. Thank you, MW. The next episode of The Weigh-In will air on April 26th and will feature Matt's interview with boxing promoter and president of Star Boxing, Joe DeGuardia. Star Boxing has been in operation since 1992, and their fighters include popular boxers such as Chris Algieri, Demetrius Andrade, and Joe Smith Jr. You can listen to the Weigh-In podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. If you listen to the show on iTunes, please leave us a rating. This will help other listeners find the show. Thank you for the preview of our next episode, Peter. If you would like to contact the Weigh-In staff, you can reach us through social media and email. Our contact information is posted in the notes section of the episode. We love to hear from our listeners. That does it for the sixth episode of the Weigh-In Boxing Podcast. The Weigh-In is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. Go to onestonerecording.com slash the weigh-in and receive 10% off your first session. 
Special thanks to Gordon Bond and you, the listeners, for being a part of our sixth episode. You can now be like our friend JP Favera and support the Way In Podcast on Patreon. You can support us for as little as $1 a month. Your pledge will go directly towards travel expenses and studio fees. Thank you again, JP, for being a part of our team. I hope the weather in Florida is great. Until next time, I'm Matt Ward, and this is The Way In.